0: Uh, Dr. Koontz, I think you know that I'm I'm decent friends with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, who many people will know from his work on YouTube. He also is famed or infamous for Table Talk Radio and, and things like that. Um, I had a conversation with him, I think it was at the year of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so that would, that would be 2017, in which he was very frustrated by the tendency of All historians post, say, 1900 to view the Reformation as a technological revolution rather than a theological revolution. That is, before 1900, the Protestant theologians would tend to talk about the discovery of the gospel, whereas after 1900, they would talk about the invention of the printing press, the Gutenberg Revolution, and and all of that. And so I'm curious, just your thoughts on that insight in general, without throwing, like, it's not like technology doesn't matter. I, I think it does. Right. Um, yeah. But it, it is. does it matter as much as we tend to think it does, is the real modern question.
1: The reason there's an overestimation of technology is because we are perhaps all of us, by instinct, materialistic, that's usually used to describe the fact that people seek after money or stuff or are in massive amounts of consumer debt. But it also indicates a sort of prejudice toward the visible that therefore ignores what is invisible. And invisible would be Luther's deepening conviction about the meaning of Romans 117, or Melanchthon's convictions about The nature of education and what is truly humanistic or what truly frees a man who studies it. So, those things, those invisible things or those convictions rather than products, are, I think, very, very difficult for modern people to perceive. And this goes, I think, very deeply into the lives also of people who go to church every Sunday. One way to tell what our, let's say, inherent tendency is, is the absence in many people's cultures at this point in the West of things that were traditional superstitions. So now perhaps we're superstitious about masks or germs or people with an insufficient number of degrees or no degree at all. And our superstitions have to be disproved by experience, then they would be superstitious about invisible forces, theological forces, demons, witches, fairies, ghosts. And there are entire parts, especially the later something was settled in the United States, entire parts of the country where things like that are largely absent because the people there just don't believe in anything like that. They don't believe in invisible things. And that doesn't mean that fairies truly exist. It means that invisible things do not matter enough to even become superstitions to us as they did to our forefathers. So I think that may be why the overestimation of the importance of visible things, technology, production would be found so often in modern people looking back because they see what they are prepared to see.
0: It's really interesting to think about the change in the invisible. So I I, just trying to jot it down as you're talking, but like, we definitely believe in electricity and, and we believe in germs and we believe in stocks and bonds, all of these more or less invisible to the average human being. Right. And yet they, they, they are the operational powers behind the lives that we live in which we trust and you know I, i've been really wrestling recently um trying to pin down idolatry as a as a word you know that literally it means to worship an image and on the one hand nobody do they nobody i don't know I, very few people seem to have a statue of a cow that they get together on weekends to give sacrifices to very few they're out there very being, few, but very few. Um, and yet it, it is it is a pinnacle concern of the New Testament to avoid this thing. Uh, James, the just in the Council of Jerusalem lists idolatry. Uh, John, in his first letter, he says all these nice things about Jesus and us. And then the last thing he says, like, get rid of the idols. And like, on one hand, the the secular person's going to look around and say, well, we did. We have. <laughs> On the other hand, I, I'm just not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure the idols haven't gotten a little wiser uh, as as to what they're doing. Um, but it does have to do very much with then. What is your superstition, right? Um, do you know the etymology of that word by any chance? Superstition. Do you have that off the top of your head?
1: I don't. I don't have that. No. Ah, uh,
0: uh, it I want. I want to know if it's related to history. at all. But uh, okay. So definitely, technology has. And science with it then has taken the role of religion in the modern world. And I think you can throw medical uh, leaps forward into the realm of technology as well. Uh, That may not be quite where you want to go with the turn of the, the 20th century. But um, to see that, uh, and we talked about this before, kind of the, the priesthood of experts, technocracy, all of these things, they, they kind of dovetail into a world in which uh, the false religion is is highly visible. It can, it, can, it can prove things to you. Here, look, I've got a magic scrying stone in my pocket. Check it out. Um, hey, I've, I've got an iron horse and uh, it doesn't even need to really be fed except for this you know crazy magic fluid that, that we dig out of the earth. Um, and so there's this way in which what we see appears to be all that there is. And yet, again, electricity, germs, stocks, bonds, there's a high amount of trust we put into what we don't see. Right. And, and then the fragility of the current scenario that we've been kind of beating on from the start of the show. Right. has a lot to do with how fragile those unseen things actually are.
1: They're fragile, both perhaps in themselves, but also as we talked about last time in the people who sustain them, who make them possible. And, The fragility in the provision of people who are able to make them possible is one of the stories that we're going to be telling over the next several weeks about particularly German scientists in each of the areas we'll be looking at, cancer research, nuclear weapons research, and air power generally, including rocketry. Because what we're looking at is a fragility Inside a particular culture, in the German culture, that is then obviously destroyed or severed, rent asunder, and and sent to the four winds by the outcome of the Second World War. I didn't want to, and and won't be doing something with the Second World War that is chronological or a narrative about you know when the war in the Pacific began or how you know, the invasion of North Africa led to the invasion of Italy, led to the invasion of France, and and thus how the Western Front was rolled up. And then the Americans shook hands with the Soviets somewhere near Berlin. Those Those things are widely available elsewhere. I think also, they tend to, if this is possible, overestimate the reality of morality in modern 20th century and i think this continues into the present 21st century man's life that the nature of our self-justification has to do with the trust in technology that then becomes evidence of goodness through victories attained technologically So what is sort of strange about this is that the relationship between the visible and the invisible is always an interplay. It's never a hard distinction. The old theological assertion is that invisible powers surround us everywhere, both good powers and evil powers. But the modern, let's say, theological assertion is that visible powers determine the goodness or the evil of invisible things, causes, morals, politics, and so on. So if I win technologically, it is because I was good. And there is a there is a power to that fallacy. It's sort of a, a Victor writes the history books idea, but applied to technology that I think is important to recall. And it's the reason that we're coming into the Second World War, as it were, through some sort of back gate looking at Germans developing technology that they will generally either be forced to give to the victors or will be altogether forgotten. And the reason we're doing that is because primarily Carol Quigley, who is writing very much a victor's history of the 20th century and tragedy and hope, ascribes as a unifying theme or force to the changes that have been wrought that have brought about modern Western liberal democracies and central banking and all the other basic invisible realities of our lives, both in 1965 and to a large degree today. He ascribes those to a commitment to rationality in life. That means that things like old theological assertions about the invisible just don't really matter. They can exist as private convictions, but they have no particular bearing on the fate of nations or the necessity of wars or any other things about which men, let's say 400 or 700 years earlier, would very much have worried. Is this justified? Does God want me to do this? Is God blessing our nation? Is our nation aligned with God? Whatever. Those factors go away in Quigley's telling, and I think he's right about this, through a single-minded pursuit of rationality in visible things, that is, in space, visible things. So what is the best way to (laughs) make a killing machine? What is the best way to rid ourselves of certain diseases? And that relentless pursuit of those things is going to be at the heart of, for Quigley, what he calls the Wests, what he really means is sort of the liberal democratic West. France, Britain, the U.S., their colonies, former, present, or, or, you know, all but in name, that's why they win, is because they pursue visible things relentlessly, and therefore improve upon them. They have better materials and materiel than anyone else, so they are victorious, and everyone else wants to imitate them.
0: So... If i th- if I heard you right, you think that he's he's right about this in some way? I got more I want to say, but it, am I hearing that correctly, you, that he has a certain perception that is correct, but then it's I think, not complete, right?
1: I, I don't think it's complete because he is not able to, despite the fact that he teaches at Georgetown and is ostensibly a lifelong Irish Catholic, he does not ascribe invisible realities such as the Godhead himself or his angels or demons or even such things as faiths or morals. I mean he will he will commend, he will praise, or he will be displeased with someone's moral assertions or political assertions, but he doesn't believe that they are determinative. That is, it doesn't really matter finally That Mussolini is wrong about the nature of a nation or that Hitler's racial assertions or ethnic assertions are right or wrong. That's not for him the problem. The problem is that they lost because their nations devoted themselves to these sort of what he sees as essentially abstract and ultimately irrelevant ideas and not instead to the pursuit of material successes yeah, yeah. in science and technology.
0: I, I find that so interesting. I'm going to come right back to it. But I know you mentioned at the start of uh, of what you said uh, that we're not doing World War II the standard way. There's flaws with that. But if you got to get some World War II, I'm going to throw out a, a wreck here for, for Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. Uh, he, he definitely has his limitations, but uh, his series Ghosts of the Ostfront." It it takes World War Two, not the way it's always been done, because it's it's from the Russian perspective. And wow, what a thing they don't teach you in class at school and high school here. Yeah, and and <laughs> right, uh, yeah. Uh, tsunami in the east, uh, same thing, starting with Japan the eighteen hundreds and all the way through the bomb. And it it really uh, is worth your time if you want some good World War II history, kind of standard style, uh, not what we're going to be doing here. Okay, so um, what's so fascinating to me about Quigley? saying that, you know, the morality of the matter doesn't matter. What matters is reason, rational understanding of physical things, is that that itself is a moral statement.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, these these kinds of assertions are always inconsistent. It's It's like the logical positivist assertion in philosophy that God is an unprovable hypothesis and therefore is irrelevant to philosophical discussion. And, Theology is therefore a pseudoscience, it's yeah, palm yeah, yeah. reading, is that that is itself, and, and un, that is a non-empirical assertion. It has to be decided logically with definition of terms. It's not subject to scientific experimentation. That doesn't really stop. I mean, this is this is perhaps the most common way that modern man goes back and forth the way Paul describes unregenerate man going back and forth in Romans 1, is that modern man goes back and forth with a certain confidence, both in his assertion, but also in his material success Mm -hmm. that allows him to be confident in his assertions. Mm. There's a basic lack of humility that is seldom found in older civilizations, really anywhere where what is self-evidently religious simply plays a much greater role in life because life is so much more obviously limited and limiting. I think modern man is perhaps unique. There are parts of ancient history lost to us. There is obviously a certain pride in the Cainites in the first 11 chapters, let's say more accurately, seven-some chapters of the primeval history in Genesis that you could say well, there is a pride there that resembles modern man's pride, or there is a pride in Nebuchadnezzar or certain other ancient kings that resemble modern man's pride. The common thread there would likely be a certain amount of technological and material success that makes you seem invincible, that is that means cannot be conquered, as well as immortal, meaning you cannot die. So those kinds of pride perhaps they exist before modernity. Modernity, as a set of especially technological conditions, enables man to have a lack of humility that I think otherwise is seldom if ever found. Quigley doesn't, of course, see that because his book, with all its compendious information, is ultimately and finally a justification of the modern West that is it's it's a justification especially of the victors in the second world war mm-hmm. and that's why we're telling what we are saying about the second world war from a different perspective because most of the listeners probably don't have access to german i don't know japanese if you look at if you look at a war from the perspective of those who lost it you will of course have a vastly different cultural memory of what occurred
0: so i'm going to kind of circle back again And, Mm -hmm. and just, I, I find it fascinating that we will reject the concept of a, a a personal or, or identity bearing eternal deity, but then we'll grab onto something as flimsy as my independent ability to reason. And based upon this or that guy's luck with Mm -hmm. his reasoning, yeah. Uh, uh, q nasim taleb uh, Nassim Tlaib, uh, uh by randomness uh, based upon their luck the survivorship bias of seen some guys did it and it worked then claim that this very abstract idea of of non contradiction based on what i've seen alone is therefore capable of sustaining reality itself uh, and, and and call that reasonable. <laughs> I, I, yeah. it, it's really not. It, it, it is an amazingly, like you already said, it, boastful, but not just boastful. It, it, it is folly, ignorance, and madness because it places the ability to to see reality entirely on an independent individual's shoulders. And and those who subscribe to this, they do. They, they ol- ultimately end in a type of madness as a society uh worshiping reason reason is a petty god <laughs> it is it is not a good god it is very petty um, and it is very skewed and again nassim tillib skewed and nearsighted and easily fooled by what it thinks it sees unable to see that there's much more it does not see oh there you go back to the unseen right uh in and, and to say the unseen not merely as like angels and demons but just my sample size, right? Uh, My sample size is always not infinite. It is always not infinite. It is always smaller than reality. And so the black swan effect and all this kind of stuff, um, uh, that there is more going on than meets the eye. And if I simply subscribe to reason, I will inevitably be a fool of what I think I know and unable to prepare for what is what is really coming. Now I don't know if that's exactly where you want to go, but to me that just is that's just that's golden stuff right there. So thanks for the letting me soapbox.
1: My 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 favorite C.S. Lewis book is the discarded image, which is a book that he wrote in order to explain as a coherent set of you know, writing a series of lectures that he would usually give to undergraduates. On the nature of the people whom they would study when they studied medieval and Renaissance English literature. Because he found that the greatest barrier that students in the 20th century at Oxford and then and then Cambridge would have to understanding this literature was not as perhaps we think, because none of us reads, and so our linguistic capacities are wildly impoverished. We don't know words that were obvious to our grandparents and i see even novelists in the new york times saying that they've never read last of the mohicans because the the words are too difficult these are these are published literary fiction novelists the difficulty that most modern people actually had understanding say the fairy queen or geoffrey chaucer was to some degree the christianity and i'm i'm sure that and i know for a fact from my own undergraduate teaching that, that is a much greater barrier than it was for Lewis 100 or 90 or 80 years ago. But was also all the things about life that medieval people presumed as real, especially the, the number and the power of invisible forces. So he talks about things like fairies and ghosts. But he also talks about the definition of the word reason. And you'll find this scattered in theological documents, especially if you're not reading Luther, <laughs> who, who just hates reason on a certain level sometimes. I mean, Luther says almost anything at least once, so <laughs> leave true. Luther aside for the moment. But say in the Athanasian Creed, you get a definition of Jesus Christ as true man, as having a rational soul and human flesh. The idea that rationality is definitive of man involves his distinction from the beasts. And his reason is his capacity to perceive and agree with truth, especially divine truth. We still have something like that very old meaning of the word reason also in English in the word reasonable. So if I say Pastor Fisk is a reasonable man, it means he is not difficult or or obstinate or he can be talked to or he will be agreeable or will seek the truth rather than maintaining something that is irrational or unreasonable and by and by the definition of the word reason transmutes into a sheer faculty or capacity that man possesses on his own so it goes from a sort of ability to sing in tune with something, and it turns into a sort of internal combustion engine that just drives you and can therefore exist independently of God or his truth or really anybody else. So I can pursue the rationality of nuclear weapons without respect to the existence of the deity or his desire for his creation. Or I can pursue the rationality of hedonism without respect to the deities prohibition of seeking pleasure wherever I find it. And his statements that it will destroy me, I pursue its rationality. So reason transmutes or changes form, changes essence over time. So modern man's reason is not his great-great-grandfather's reason. And I think that's important to maintain because the word is not used throughout most of Christian history in a way, with with the exception of Luther sometimes, as if it is devilish or demonic. Maybe one way to understand this is to think about modern reason as being equivalent to James's discussion of the wisdom that is earthly or demonic versus the wisdom that comes down from above being a lot more like an older version of the definition of reason.
0: I, I really don't want you to hear me saying that reason is bad. It, it is When I say reason is a petty god, it, it's not that reason is the problem, is that when you treat it like a god, it like you just said, it changes. And yeah. I, I really love this idea that it goes from being an ability God gave man to the essence of man's self. Oh, and man, and that's and right. That is, that is a profound deterioration. <laughs> If you really are thinking about it reasonably, like like to get a gift from an Almighty God that allows me to see versus I am just the ability to see, right? Like that is a huge step, and again, it puts everything back on I am. Hey Descartes, welcome back to the club. I rationality, science in Quigley's framework, then as a tool for justifying. Western civilizations need to continue existing after World War II is kind of where we are, I think, in the notes right now. Um, yeah. If you want to dovetail back into that through whatever you're about to say.
1: It is notable that when you think about the, the various combatants in the Second World War, the story that we were told is and I don't just mean the narrative or a greater knowledge of say events on the Eastern front, which really is determinative for the war. And so the Carlin or any other resource that you can find on the Eastern front is going to be a lot more valuable than reposting pictures of D-Day on your Facebook feed or something. That's not knowledge of world war II or how it happened per se. It's a very small portion of it, but the, let's say the overarching moral framework the reason that we are given for World War II is a lot like the Civil War in that there is a moral purpose assigned to it that at the time, very few people are aware of. And even in years later, people do not perceive. So it's it's a great deal more debatable in the case of the Second World War, even than it is in the case of the American Civil War, whether the combatants were self-consciously fighting for some kind of overarching independent moral purpose. Americans overwhelmingly did not want to enter the Second World War, just as an example from One Nation. When they do enter, it is practically universally understood that we are entering because we were attacked by the Japanese. And the Japanese are allied, of course, with the Germans and the Italians. And that's why. So we are defending ourselves and we're defending the people that The people who were in support of entering the Second World War wanted to defend anyway, which would be Britain, and by some extension, say, France, with some parts of the American left favoring the Soviet Union, including Henry Wallace, who was vice president at one point in these proceedings. So that's why, in retrospect, especially after the 1970s, the Second World War becomes about stopping Hitler because Hitler is trying to kill especially, and I'm just trying to give the this story as told, because Hitler was trying to kill Jews. So that's a specific conflict, having fairly deep roots in 19th century European politics, national struggles, the rise of Jews as an integrated force in European society, especially in Germany, and then Jews as a self-conscious nationalistic group with the Zionist movement and so on and so forth. All of that is a great deal more complex than people generally know. And I had to get that by finding books written by Jews for generally Jewish audiences in order to find that out about how the Zionist agency in Palestine arranged to have Jews shipped from Germany in the 1930s to Palestine in order to increase their proportion of the population. So you're telling was, me
0: you're telling me that to come to your completely antisemitic position antisemitic position <laughs> you had to get it from the semites like they had to well, tell you
1: <laughs> in order to come to a position that was much more morally complicated than what i was taught there in public go. school yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah because the issue here is that it's there are there are all kinds of other factors going on and i i don't particularly it it One way to sum it up is to use the phrase that Ernst Nolte uses to describe the entire period from 1914 to 1945, and that is a European civil war, Yeah, meaning not just Germany against Russia, but German Jews against ethnically German Germans, French against Germans, French speakers in Belgium against Dutch speakers in Belgium and on and on and on and on and it explains why for instance the swedes and the norwegians didn't take the same side the swedes actually took no side for their own reasons because this wasn't a, this was not a piece of you know shining moral glory it was a time of destruction and ferocious competition for resources that's not a materialistic explanation it's saying that things like obtaining sufficient oil for a modern war machine Is really, really, really important. And it explains a great deal of what is presented to you as a sort of psychological thing. Oh, Hitler's just crazy. That's why he invaded Russia. You know, his generals knew he couldn't win in Russia. Well, he invaded because they controlled oil fields that he felt he needed. Now he could have been called Ukraine, right?
0: Isn't that called Ukraine today? (laughs) I feel like it
1: is. Well, that's its own civil war in that the Ukrainians see the Germans as liberators. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or that the Poles on the day that they are invaded by Germany and Russia at the same time are have their own we would call it fascist regime, but of course at the time no one is the West is not going to tell themselves they're going to war to fight for Polish nationalism. So It's extremely complex, but it's presented as just a clear moral thing. We were going to liberate the concentration camps, or we were going to do this or that, and none of that is clear. It's a lot less clear, to be honest with you, than the motivations of, say, some significant minority of the northern population in our civil war fighting to free the slaves. Most of them didn't think they were doing that. They thought it was about the union. Some of them did all along, and more of them did as the war progressed, maybe never a majority, but a fair number you can't find anything like that for the second world war it's there's no monocle like focus cyclops focus on one specific cause it generally has to do with what's perceived by any given side as national self-defense so think about what the russians still call the second world war the great patriotic war because they saw it as a matter of national survival so to the germans So do the Austrians once they join with Germany, and and so on. So the idea that there's some sort of continuous moral narrative, it's very interesting with Quigley in the 60s, that's still recent enough that the term Holocaust doesn't even specifically refer to Jews. When he uses it, it Mm -hmm. refers to civilian deaths generally, including German civilian deaths during air bombing campaigns by the Allies on, on the continent.
0: There's a lot is, of people burned in Japan by air bombing. There too, are a lot of people burned, LA. yeah,
1: and he mentions that too and that we're going to – we'll do cancer research and then nuclear weapons and then air power for that reason is he doesn't see a continuous moral narrative even though he – I mean he, he says bad things about Hitler. He thinks Hitler was crazy and so on, but it's not the same sort of portrayal that when we talk about cancer research next week – a book that was published last year about a German cancer researcher, it reads like a cartoon when it talks about the Second World War itself. Hitler is a cartoon figure. The war is a cartoonish battle between Superman and some bad guy you know is going to lose. So those ideas give you no real sense. Cartoons give you no real sense of life. So that's why we're looking at something that is not it is not generally exp- you know said this is how the second world war went went down or this is why but it is a continuous narrative Quigley has and that is the power of technology to attain victory because without it you don't have decisive differences and you probably have eventually russian collapse which would probably mean german victory Throughout Europe and and perhaps even Asia, Russia is sustained by American technology. <laughs> so these, I I'm trying to give the listener some something continuous that then will also go through to the post war period, because something else that I remember and I I I can recall the 50th anniversary of D Day, and it was a big deal in the media at the time. And President Clinton went to France to be there, and and probably former presidents were there too. And it was all over different news magazines and newspapers. And at that time, and I was young then, I can remember the idea that, and that's when I first began to hear the phrase, greatest generation. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it existed before the 1990s. But if you think about that adjective, greatest, it means nothing better before and nothing better since. And the greatest there is not just the scale of mobilization, which is similar and in fact surpassed in some European countries by mobilization for World War I. It's not just the, the sheer number absolutely of people involved. It is also that somehow their cause was finer or greater or higher.
0: Yeah, they themselves were more virtuous than we are. And, and yes and, and, they, and it's them, because yes. of that factor That's right. the individual soldiers
1: yes. that we won correct uh. yeah and that inside of them and you still hear this i mean i i hear this in people talking about well politics was not so partisan when the greatest generation was fighting together you know in and then they you know they were in congress together in the 70s and people worked with each other and that ignores so many other factors that have changed in american life it's It's foolish, it's insane. but it's it's a grounds of appeal, and you're right that it, the the morality is seen to inhere in them. So this is an assertion about the invisible. So a society that is owes pretty much everything it is to the visible does not stop making assertions about the invisible. It just makes assertions <laughs> that I think, because it's so unaccustomed to talking about invisible things are extremely crude. So if you go back, get yourself a cheap, find a, get a, get a some kind of educational address and you get the New York Times really cheaply. You can go to the Times machine. That's their archive. And it's got stuff from the 1880s to like 2002. And you can limit your search terms. You can do this with other things too, I'm sure, to maybe 1946, 1947, 1948 and start looking at crime. Just like after every other war ever, crime spiked after the Second World War. Because war, as people who have prosecuted it and commanded in it and gone through it in every age, as war does, it destroys something about human beings and affects them permanently. So the contemporary witness is not that this is the greatest generation of people ever. It's that we won this war. Now we're trying to return to normal or become more prosperous than we were when the war started or whatever the case may be, but they're not valorizing themselves at the time. And I don't think that's just sheer humility. Like I'm the greatest athlete ever. I just don't want to say it. It's that they don't actually see that in life. That's a backward look, in the case of the Gerish generation, I think largely by Boomers at their parents, or maybe at their you know older uncles, or even Didn't
0: Tom Brokaw wrote the book.
1: Tom Brokaw wrote the book. Is he a Boomer? And
0: is he a boomer he's a he... Boomer. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right.
1: And so what you're dealing with, I think, is a backward look at people seeing what they were doing in life over which they had essentially no control. I mean, they were drafted. And yes, baseball players volunteered for the draft, but the baseball player, I mean, today they would, be, they would be like Dominicans, so they wouldn't be drafted anyway. But back then, they're under media pressure to do these things too. There's sincere patriotism. There's sincere desire to fight for one's country. There's also a great deal of pressure. There's also a draft. And to to act like that's somehow different or better or higher than any other generation, I think is theologically very foolish.
0: Yeah. I mean, but, I, I, go ahead, go ahead.
1: But it, it controls our thinking in a very powerful way with effects on all kinds of different aspects of American life, because it gives you something. And this is a basically pagan myth is the myth of a golden age. Yeah,
0: right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Rather than the idea that man is corrupt and by virtue of his corruption, will generally look similar, especially in his vices, generation after generation after generation. Abram will offer up his wife. Isaac will off- offer up his wife. David will sleep with the wrong women. Solomon will sleep with the wrong women, and on and on and on. Rather than a pagan idea that there are certain times in which there are, as it were, gods walking upon the earth in human form. They just happen to be wearing you know, the uniform of the 101st Airborne Division in 1944.
0: It seems to me that that this is this is spot on, and it is a, the Greatest Generation is a religious mythos used to allow the boomer generation and those who follow to believe that the United States is the greatest nation. So the Greatest Generation achieved this moral virtue-driven victory that put us into a place of power and primacy in our own eyes, and we can therefore believe we, we in fact deserve it. And so in some ways, it's like a, uh, a a dictate to the boomers that they must be what they are um, because they're the children of the greatest. You know, what, how else could we be but the greatest? And this in spite of the fact that as that generation is, is being raised up, they are toppling uh, the traditional values and or um, undergirds of the entire civilization left and right. At the same time, nonetheless, they see this visible material success. It continues to come forward, and, and this becomes one more proof that we are, we are the sons of the greatest. Um, that material visible success, I, I'm really uh, curious—I I don't know, this might be too broad of a question— but there is no question, I think, um, that the ability to leap forward in discovery— in the 20th century is is unparalleled right i mean there were discoveries before that but our ability to continue to build upon those discoveries seems to compound uh over the course of the 20th century and is that a matter of uh, trust and reason? Is that a matter of dumb luck? Is is that a matter of um, a, a virtue and endurance and just testing a lot of different things, uh, sticking with it? Um, how, how do you read that? And or is it, is that wrong? Um, is it kind of a charade that we're playing? Um, I, I heard it. I think the book was called the the Problem of Physics, and and I listened to it a couple of years ago, and and. It made the case that Newtonian physics had uh, broached a certain level of p- potential understanding uh, that then was shifted by Einsteinian physics, and that we could learn a certain amount of literally technological advances, you know, microphones and whatever, um, uh, from what we learned from from his discovery of relativity. But then uh, we hit this wall called quantum physics, and there, there's a point at which we can't actually create anything else anymore. We have no more science to build on, and so the the appearance of great leaps forward is merely one leap that then kind of sends out some ripples for a while. And until we have another leap, we're actually kind of dead in the water with technological advancement. Um, So again, a broad question, I suppose, but uh, a chance for you to get into technological development is continuous.
1: (laughs) Vaclav Smil writes a pair of books called Creating the 20th Century, and maybe it's Applying the 20th Century, something like that. The point is that the first book about creating the 20th century is set in the 19th century. And his contention is that we discover the 20th century in principle in the 19th, and then we apply those discoveries, we apply those principles in the 20th. So that the 20th is a case of scientifically of application or detail rather than discovery, strictly speaking. And in each of the cases that we're handling with the Second World War, there is a story of development that will have to begin sometime around, say, our civil war at, at the least that we will have to tell in each case in order to tell the story well. So I think that what occurs in the 20th century is a matter of mass application and especially applications spurred by the first and second world wars the reason that's continuous is because not only does it for a long time precede those both who who plan but also who fight those wars it existed in their grandfather's lifetimes but also because the developments themselves are continuous from Let's just 1870, for example, through to 1970, the application of mechanization to warfare or the dreaming and then the application of air power to warfare. Now, if you think that morality is somehow continuous, that's why, for example, I think in our public school curriculum, since there's nothing particularly morally resonant about the First World War for most people or about the Korean War the stories simply are not told, even though to a large degree, the same generation fights the Korean War, just at a different scale, with some of the younger brothers involved, as fought the Second World War. So the continue the the line of continuation there is a continuation of technological development, say of the nature of air power in Korea being lessons and applications, especially things that we picked up from German research at the end of the Second World War, or the line of continuous development is the application of pesticides, herbicides, and other forms of chemical warfare from the First World War through to when we are chemically burning the jungles of Vietnam in the 60s and early 70s. I can't tell a continuous and honest moral story, although that is precisely what I think Greatest Generation tries to do because then it allows you to leave the boomers' own behavior, most of them having, to go back to our Florida Recount episode, two boomers, Bush v. Gore, both of whom got out of active duty military service even though they were combat eligible throughout most of the conflict in Vietnam. Since that behavior is pretty common, especially among our media and political elites, as Christopher Caldwell chronicled in Age of Entitlement, with Vietnam being the first conflict that Americans had, where our elites that overwhelmingly did not participate, they're not going to tell a moral story and can't tell a continuous, honest moral story. So if I valorize the Second World War, that gives me a good war to look back to. And it allows me, I suppose, to let Vietnam be ambiguous because there's no, you know, Ho Chi Minh does not receive the same historical treatment as Hitler. And part of the reason for that, or part of the reason that most Americans don't know a whole lot about communist atrocities in North Korea or North Vietnam or Cambodia is because it's of no use. (laughs) Why would they know those things? We don't have to go to war there, so I don't have to tell a moral narrative about it. So we want to tell something that is coherent and honest, and we can do that with technological developments in relationship to warfare. We can't do that with the shifting moral narratives in relationship to these various wars, but even especially the Second World War.
0: Hmm. So the two weapons that won World War II for us, uh, I think, are going to be the aircraft carrier and the nuclear bomb. Uh, Is that correct?
1: So this is an interesting thing. I got the idea from an old review of a book about J. Robert Oppenheimer's political difficulties and suspicions. He was the lead scientist on the Manhattan Project that developed nuclear weaponry for the United States. And I'm throwing it out there for the listeners on delight and and interest and research is what are the weapons that won world war ii for us i i am personally inclined to agree with you that it is the aircraft carrier and the nuclear bomb or long-range air power and the nuclear bomb if you want to be a little more branch neutral and include what we did in europe but the new york times review from the 1990s sometime so that the two things that won us the war and that then continue to be constituents of our power into the Cold War, and it's that continuous narrative that I'm trying to draw, so that's why I find this stimulating, are respectively nuclear weaponry, no surprise, and the security apparatus necessary to prosecute the Second World War.
0: <laughs> Is that cryptography?
1: Um, it's cryptography, it's having spies, it's- okay. It's the special operations executive rolling into the Mm lies. It's a black ops budget. It's some of the things that we've talked about before, which is why I'm not going to devote a special this is the you know office of strategic services episode. Also, and partly the, the reason I'm not doing that is because I find that very often in our deep state or in people or our security state to speak a little more neutrally and maybe accurately but also in people who are i think emotionally and politically invested in they they require a certain moral narrative so on the right this has sometimes been the idea that the FBI are the good guys because they're prosecuting long-haired domestic enemies now that's that's this <laughs> every time they raid uh, Roger Stone or Trump's homes in Florida that gets chipped away just a little bit more. But on the left, it's almost required that you despise the CIA because they're understood to be some sort of world historical reactionary force. So anything that is its precursor, like the OSS or the SOE, those are also evil. That has also changed of late because of the closing of the ranks of our security state around itself and against right-wing populism represented by Donald Trump. But there are moral narratives also about these different government agencies, most of which if they if they do exist before the Second World War, which is rare, most come into existence during or just after the Second World War, they become vastly larger. and the Pentagon, moves from being a department of war headquartered next to the White House, along initially with the State Department and the Navy Department in a single building. And by the end of the Second World War is in process of building the Pentagon devoted to a Department of Defense on its own, with its own absolutely enormous building and absolutely enormous worldwide capacities. So the contention there is that the two weapons that win and then preserve the peace, such as it is afterward, our nuclear weaponry feels kind of obvious, but also the entire human or bureaucratic apparatus necessary to bring all of that weaponry and intelligence and so forth to bear almost anywhere in the world at any time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I go full full nut job conspiracy, it seems to me that 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 second one, uh, the bureaucratic intelligence community was the weapon that could have kept us out of the war and didn't um, let the reader understand. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. Okay. That's cool. The, 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 Um, I don't know if this fits, but I have to tell the story because I love the story and yeah. it has to do with like the greatest technological breakthrough that didn't win the war, but it yeah. almost did because it's the way that the blitzkrieg worked with the panzer tanks that the the French military had better armaments than the Germans by a wide wide range their tanks were better than the German tanks and there should be no disputing that if you go and you look at you know what went to war first together but the German tanks had something in them that the French tanks did not and that was two-way radios and the ability to maneuver the tanks in real time with communication uh, was was stunning i mean it just ran over the french they the greatest land army in the world just Destroyed quickly, um, and and really, uh, you can make the case that uh, on the Eastern Front as well, the reason they progressed as far as they did was their communications apparatus. So I guess in one sense that is the answer, though. I mean, the you know if you want to talk about the bureaucratic deep state, it's a communications apparatus. It's the the bringing to bear of media as warfare. I'll look at that um, uh, without even you know. I mean long before they realized they could use it against you. <laughs> um, uh, just realizing that it would allow you to maneuver your troops in ways faster, further than ever before, right? right? Um, supply chain issues uh, really just shifting in that regard. You still got to deal with food, but, you know, supply chain used to mean also orders. <laughs> and, and in one way that was taken away by the technological advancements of, of radio. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating.
1: The word logistics is one that a man trained in the 19th century, Winston Churchill, did not recognize as real or important. So our chief naval strategist in the Second World War, Admiral Ernest King, Mm. would use the word constantly because he saw it as key to American victory. And it sounds, it sounds boring, I guess, unless you're waiting for your Amazon package to actually get to you or something, and then you care about logistics. But it's a word that Churchill would pretend he didn't even understand. That somehow war was about daring do or about bravery or about, you know, whatever. Well, there's your virtue, the greatest, though,
0: right? There, there's your moral imperative.
1: Yeah, the Greatest Generation or something, and, and King was saying, you know, well, that's, you know, that's fine. But <laughs> if we don't get stuff to our men when they need it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how brave they are. So that there is, a, there is a realism that I appreciate about the kinds of perspectives that Quigley, but also men involved in these events often had that is missing both in in some of their contemporaries, especially those from an older time, but certainly in us, when we look back at them, where there is a a valorization or a, a golden shining around them that they did not see nor assert was there. They ascribed their victory to relatively hard generally technological forces, the rest of that, you know, uh, we won because we were great or because our cause was just or something that would be left for, you know, time-life fluff pieces.
0: And isn't that sort of where, where we started here too, um, the, the belief in a God behind history who would respond to people based upon their commitment to him or knowledge of him or relationship to him. Uh, and just because, you know, one group of pagans replaces the Orthodox God with a um, a story about how we were just the better generation than ever was before, um, doesn't really shift us away from the superstition that's so inherent to mankind, even though we will shift the things we are superstitious about, right? So, yeah. uh,
1: go ahead. I, I think the big difference is that it's not that moral factors are absent from warfare, certainly among Christian peoples, or that they're not trying to discern from the sacking of Rome by the barbarians in Augustine's City of God, or the assertions in the William Billings's anthem from Our Revolution, The tune's now called Chester, but it's about how God is putting to flight the generals of the British by means of our beardless boys, because New England's God forever reigns. The difference is that Christians historically did not make assertions about the possession of their own virtue. They would assert that people could lose because they were being punished by God that nations would be uprooted or defaced or sent into exile or extinguished altogether because of God's judgments but the assertion there was not that new englanders were unusually possessed of virtue and that's why they were defeating the you know anglicans and lutheran hessians who had been sent to put down the rebellion the idea was that god's judgments were visible in history that's a that's something different than saying that our prowess inherent in us, like our reason, is visible in history. So, yeah, so we are in a, we are in a, this, this is why the assertion is frequently made now of people being on the wrong or the right side of history. They're not saying history equals God's judgments, visible in some kind of record. They're saying that history is our moral narrative and you can be on the right side of that or you can be on the wrong side of that
0: (laughs) so hitler lost because of evil and god's judgment against hitler but america didn't win because of its good and god's recognition of that good and this makes me this makes me think of um i think it's assyria punishing israel And then, you know, getting smacked down itself pretty hard right afterwards, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, the way, and we've talked about this before, the, the exaltation of Hitler into like an arch demon is significant for this worldview that I'm saying is our common moral narrative, but is in fact wrong. Because it's wrong about what human beings are. When you take a man and make him into an all-time forever demon, unlike anyone else who has ever existed, you thereby assign a role to him he doesn't have. He's a human creature. You also assign to him a significance that he doesn't have, which is he can no longer be an example for you in any way because you're so unlike him because you're a human and he's a demon. So that that issue is i think one one thing that causes the incredible pride that is exhibited in discussion of what are really just ongoing atrocious destructive offense i don't know how else to put it you know i mean it, i mean do we I, I don't I don't want to do the episode on air power and just describe civilian accounts of children burning to death in Germany or Japan but if that's if that's what we need to shock us out of ourselves then then I'll do that because I think the the conviction that somehow since we are not demons unlike our foes or generally at this point in history it's really just Hitler nobody Nobody feels about that Oh, person. That Hirohito. whole semi
0: fascist thing rising up. Be careful. They do. Now.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, and that's why no one's saying that you're semi, you know, national Shintoist, right? Because Hirohito doesn't occupy the same role in the inverse pantheon that Hitler does. But when you have a historical figure who is an incarnate demon, then you get someone who can by no means serve as a negative example to you of. Geez, maybe this guy should have gotten up before ten a.m. and like managed the two-front war he was trying to fight, or whatever. Right? There's there's no human example to be drawn from the destruction of demons, and therefore we are immune from criticism because we destroyed a demon. I mean, do you have so you have a problem with exorcisms? So I think the the reason to explode a a through narrative of shining morality is because it does not enable us it does not make us capable of repentance also collectively and
0: yeah i think i think that's where it still remains a a general assumption let's just beat on the lutheran church again here a general assumption amongst the membership of the lutheran church missouri Synod that america cannot fall that it cannot fall, that it it must go on because it is good, and that's what you're trying to uh, not not knock down directly, but uh, notice that it could be knocked down, uh, that there is no guarantee that uh, we are good or that we will last. In fact, if you start assessing what we're actually doing as a nation, uh, the difference between us and the Nazis is, is getting thinner and thinner.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, and, we we, yeah. we mutilate our own children, yeah. not other people's children, our own children. Yeah. And the issue here is, I, I can tell people are confused about this, because if I say something like, I love America, they associate that with causes and ideologies and certain victories in battle. You understand how perverse that is. That's like saying, I love my dad because he's rich and amazing and handsome. You should just love your dad because he's your dad. I love my country because it's my country. It doesn't have to be the greatest country ever at all times, always. That, That would be foolish. It would also make, if it were my family, my family incapable of repentance because what does my absolutely amazing family have to repent of? So that's that's one of the biggest issues is the incapacity for repentance because you see no need for repentance because what you tell yourself about the past is that you are right.
0: So to be the right pinky toe on Nebuchadnezzar's statue, you're listening to a brief history of power. You know where to find us, sir, you wouldn't be here.
1: What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive, liberal, woke? imagine a college that is affordable a college that is unapologetically conservative and lutheran a college that won't take a dime of federal funding a college that teaches the best of our western heritage a college where students grow in the christian faith instead of leaving it behind this is luther classical college a college by lutherans and for lutherans visit our website lutherclassical.org subscribe become a patron and join the thousands who are making luther classical college a reality at seven thousand one hundred twenty-three feet You can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the Saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at BlessedSacramentLutheranChurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful Inland Northwest.